0: It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, everyone. I am indeed Michael Henry Harris. And this is another edition of the Origin Story Podcast. Before we get to this month's superhero, I do have a couple of announcements. One, if you are looking for the process edition of the Origin Story Podcast, we'll be getting one to you very soon. For those that don't know, the process episodes follow me as I trudge along writing, and Will Haraway of the Sundogs and the Haraway Brothers as he writes new songs. It's a lot of fun, and if you're interested in the artistic process of either one of those two mediums, then you will probably like it. If you're not, you should probably skip it. Uh, Two, I am recording this as DragonCon starts. Uh, DragonCon has become an annual event for my son and I, and we will be recording a DragonCon recap on the sister podcast, the Pinecone Turkeys Owls on Culture podcast, and we'll record that on Monday. If you're curious about DragonCon but don't want to face the crowds... You could follow Pinecone Turkey on Instagram because we will be posting lots of pictures and videos all weekend long. And finally, if you have not signed up for the Flock email, please go to PineconeTurkey.com and do so. If you do, I'll send you two emails a month. The first contains your minimum monthly dose of art. These are short stories, visual art, poetry, and short films that I curate especially for you. And the second email has updates on everything Pinecone Turkey, including our podcasts and book publishing. I am working with the talented writers right now, actually, getting the next 12 authors, 12 stories book ready. All right, that's enough business. Our hero today is Charlotte Galetka. Charlotte is the managing partner at Silver Penny Financial Planning and a chartered retirement planning counselor. She graduated Summa cum laude from North Carolina State University, and she's active on the local area committee for Young Life Atlanta Project, You know which we did not discuss, and we should have, because I was a Young Life leader for about a... half second before my wayward life took over uh charlotte gives financial literary literary education talks for the youth through the kenrod organization and local schools she is passionate about serving her local community and financially empowering females that's a great uh theme that we talk about throughout the podcast and uh it's pretty uh pretty fun to learn about charlotte was honored to be named the investment news 40 under 40 class of 2019 This award highlights young talent in the financial advice industry and recognizes their accomplishments, contributions to the industry, leadership, and promise for the future. She is a member of the Morningstar Advisory Board. She was awarded the 2018 Circle of Excellence Award by Women in Financial Services, and she is proud to be a member of the Investment News Women Advisors Summit 2019 Advisory Board. She is also a 2015-2019 to Atlanta Five-Star Wealth Manager and recipient of the 2017 Lincoln Southeast Advisor of Now Award. She also serves on the ABS Advisory Council at Lincoln Financial Advisors. This is all a long-winded way of saying that she's a badass. Uh, So in the conversation, we discuss about her upbringing, running a small business, the importance of financial planning, how she made it through severe economic downturns, and a key lesson for me was hearing her path to owning her identity and realizing that what made her different uh, was a great asset. Uh, it's a really cool uh, journey. So we also discussed that she has a passion for sharing the message of financial literacy and financial empowerment with women. Uh, and one legal disclaimer that needs to be said uh, Nothing on the podcast episode should be considered to be financial advice. She's a regulated person in a regulated industry, so what you're about to hear is not financial advice or recommendations. All right, enough. Let's get to it. Charlie Galetka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, So you may or may not know this about me, but I am a theater nerd, and I recently saw that your 94-year-old grandmother was in a play Is this true?
1: Yes. She had her stage debut in Charlotte, North Carolina. At
0: 94? Yes. That's amazing.
1: It was phenomenal. And I thought it was going to be a little dry, and it wasn't. What was it about? It was um, a century through seven voices. And it ranged of individuals from 74 was the youngest and 97 was the oldest. And they kind of went through different periods of history and then had pieces of their personal life stories So it was documentary in style, but a director or writer, somebody spent a year with them extrapolating the interesting parts of their stories, and it was one of the most entertaining theater productions I've ever seen.
0: Oh, that's very cool. Did you learn anything about your grandmother and her story that you hadn't learned before?
1: I knew most of her story. I'm very close with her, so the things that she shared were not a surprise, but... Um, she fell in love at 88, 10 years after her husband had passed away. So I think that was interesting for her to share that publicly and talk about that. Right. You know,
0: that's but very, very cool. It was really cool. All right. So I've shoot horn theater into this conversation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of my goal on all, on all of these. Uh, so if you, are meeting somebody at a cocktail party and they ask, what do you do? What do you, what do you answer?
1: Well, I tell people I'm a financial advisor, which usually causes them to run the other way. <laughs> really? Yes. Why is that? You think? I don't know. People don't want a sales pitch, and I think that my industry is notorious for having some aggressive individuals.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, if an alien came down and asked you what a financial advisor is, what how do you what do you how do you describe that?
1: Help people understand and make sense of their financial lives. Okay. Um, Let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Gwinnett County, Georgia. All right, so you were local. I was, yeah.
0: That's outstanding. Uh, so you went all through high school and.
1: Yes, I graduated from high school with the same people that I went to kindergarten with.
0: Oh wow! So okay, like a small little private school kind of environment, no, or is no? Just Gw- everybody followed the same track.
1: Gwinnett County in the eighties and nineties was, you know, a bunch of baby boomers moved there and raised kids, and it just exploded like all the suburbs in Atlanta.
0: I gotcha. And uh, what was home life like?
1: It was awesome. I have two incredible parents and very traditional. My dad worked. My mother stayed home with us. Um, it was your idyllic suburban existence. We rode bikes in the cul-de-sac. We walked to the pool and swam in the summers and it was peachy keen.
0: I gotcha. You. Do you have siblings?
1: I do have a younger sister. She's two and a half years younger than me. Well,
0: that's cool. She Where is she?
1: She's in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. Yeah, well,
0: That's fun. Uh, what did your parents do?
1: So my father is a financial advisor, Okay. and my mother was in education before she stayed home with us.
0: I got you. Uh, what kind of kid were you? What were you into?
1: I think I always had a strong personality. Um, I like, you know, I, it was a classic 80s childhood, right? So it wasn't like now where you have to start getting in activities and specializing. I love dance. That was always really fun for me. Um, I did a bunch of different things, but there wasn't anything specific that I was, you know, I was an average student.
0: Was that a, uh, what was that about? Cause it's obviously not about intelligence. Was it just not a priority or just doing other things or did it didn't matter to you or did?
1: I think I'm a social being at heart. So I think talking and friends were all, prioritized maybe above academics.
0: Yeah, I get that. <laughs> uh, so I read on the internet, so it must absolutely be true, <laughs> uh, but correct me if it's not, that you said that you were probably the only kid and certainly the only girl that grew up wanting to open a money market account.
1: Yeah. So th- <laughs> Where
0: did that come from?
1: So my parents always raised me to know that girls could be good at money, which I didn't realize was unique until I became an adult. Um, and my mother introduced an economic system at a young age she had this really cool thing called the check system and in the summertime we had to earn all of our privileges so if we wanted to have a friend spend the night or if we wanted to go to blockbuster we had to do chores and the chores were worth a certain amount of checks so if I wanted to have a friend spend the night was 10 checks so I had to have 10 chores But I quickly learned ways to work the system, and I would tell my friends, do you want to spend the night with me? Let's go do chores and get a bunch of checks.
0: Shut up. You're like making them like paint the the white fence like Tom Sawyer, tricking them into helping out.
1: (laughs) And I was like, and we can go to Blockbuster and get ice cream if we do 20 chores. So
0: That's amazing. That is very smart on your mom's part and on your part.
1: It was. I learned the economic system, but then I was always a saver, I think, and... I, I think I was maybe 10 when I wanted to have a money market, and this was back when you can get 5% in a money market account, so my dad helped me open one, and I had a money market account in middle school.
0: So for anybody who is as ignorant as I am about financial matters, yeah. is I, I presume it's gone down since 5% right. on what um, you can get in a money market?
1: Yeah, you're going to be lucky after last week, you're not going to get much in a money market at all, but... You know, if you can get a percent or two in a money market right now, that's great.
0: Uh, do you remember what you wanted to be when you were, let's say, in middle school or even even younger or in high school? Whenever that kind of first thought maybe occurred to you?
1: Yeah, so you will be surprised to know that I did go through a short uh, theater stint myself in middle school. What? Yes, I was actually, my mom used to drive down to Horizon Theater.
0: Oh, excellent.
1: And there was, it was a middle school troupe of, um, we would write plays and act out little short plays. So there was a period where I thought I would go into theater as well, but I quickly learned, um, that was not my interest or skill set. And so in high school, um, I think I always wanted to be a business person. I used to play business as a child.
0: Tell me about that.
1: So my grandfather had a really cool accounting calculator that would spit out the tape.
0: Oh, yeah. There's
1: nothing better than clicking those keys and watching <laughs> yeah. that, you know, tape come. And there was also, um, gosh, back in the 80s, uh, day to night business Barbie. So I think Mattel would- Shut up. No. Was it really? Uh-huh. Barbie uh. had shoulder pads. <laughs> and I think my little, little girl self, thought deep inside like I want to be like her one day and I want to go to work and wear a really cool suit with shoulder pads
0: that's amazing what was the uh was it like a little black dress for the evening outfit on Barbie or do you remember
1: you know I only remember the daytime outfit I don't remember the evening outfit that probably
0: says a lot right there right (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome Uh, so where did you go to school and how did you pick what school you wanted to go to
1: so I went to NC State, which was very controversial in my family because it was ni- it was the late '90s and the Hope Scholarship had just come out, um, and so I got into Georgia, got into the honors program. So it would have been free for me to go to college at UGA, but at the time where I went to high school was the largest feeder school into UGA. Oh wow! And I appreciated my childhood and my friends, but I really wanted to do something different. That whole spread your wings was deep inside me. And at the time, uh, the Dixie Chick song had come out, New Faces, New Places. Okay. So I'm not saying that a a popular song informed my educational decision. (laughs) (laughs) There are worse things. However, I really was drawn to North Carolina, and someone told me they had a good communication department because I think I had narrowed down, okay, I don't want to do theater, but I want to do business. I like to talk. Communication, I'll study that. Uh, So I went to NC State and the people were really great. And so I just thought, you know, I I think I want to do this. And I asked my father at the time, you know, will there be – this is the financial mind to me. I said, will there be a financial difference if I go to Georgia or if I go to NC State? And he said, no, you will know no difference, which was shocking to me because he never indicated that's not – you know, I had a great childhood, but he never shared – Hey, we have this savings set aside for you to go to college, you know, but he just said, wherever you can get in and you want to go, you will be able to go.
0: That's extraordinary.
1: It is extraordinary. And my 17 year old self knew the value of that. And so I thought, you know, like how many people get this opportunity? And I was an old soul, I think at 17, 18, I said I want to try. I want to go somewhere where I don't know a single soul and give it a try.
0: Yeah, especially after you know feeding in through pre-K or kindergarten with the same same people. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. Uh, were you a better student in college? Did you kind of click?
1: Yes, I did. Uh, so I have something sort of interesting that happened to me at seventeen. I was diagnosed with ADD, okay, which was a shock to my parents because I'd always been a B student um, and. Some, some, my mom, my mother read a book or something tipped her. And so she said, I just want you to go see this person. And I saw him and they said, it's difficult to diagnose, um, sometimes females that are real social and have a decent intelligence because they're able to come up with their own coping mechanisms. And so once they made the diagnosis and they gave me a bunch of tools to be an advocate for myself, it was like putting glasses on and I just fell in it. it, everything clicked. So I fell in love with studying and reading and school. And I first year of college, I had a four Oh Dean's list.
0: Yeah. I saw it like summa cum laude. So we had very different college experiences. Uh, So did you know before the diagnosis that, you know, like why is this, this is a little harder for me than it is for other people. And that, or is it literally like, Oh my God, these glasses are on and now this is easy.
1: Um, I had to study a little bit more and it's funny I had adapted into what I would consider like social studying I would invite people over and be like hey let's go over this together because that would hold my attention but I I didn't think too hard about it and I knew that my mind would race and be kind of fast and like getting through book it was hard for me to read it was hard for me to concentrate and read but I didn't recognize it as being a major challenge I think I was even in the gifted program in middle school so it didn't seemed that there was something up.
0: Gotcha. What, uh, do you remember any of the major kind of coping mechanisms uh, post diagnosis of the tools they gave you that, that really helped?
1: Oh yes. Uh, They said that, you know, I was a kinetic learner. So I started doing a lot of studying on the elliptical. No way. Yeah. In my, when my body's in motion, I'm able to pick up concepts and facts.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So that was really helpful. They also said, um, if you can engage in 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, it fires up your frontal lobes. Wow.
0: All right. Yeah.
1: So even in my current life, if I can get up early and exercise or run, I feel like I, I really come into the office and just crush it.
0: Oh, that's very, very cool. Yeah. Okay. So you did great at NC State. Uh, what was your major? I,
1: I double majored. Okay. I have a degree in Spanish and I have a degree in communication.
0: All right. Very, very cool. Uh, tell me some Spanish I <laughs> had to know it was coming
1: ¿Quieres hablar español awesome <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you I took French uh, alright very very cool so where did you go uh, after NC State
1: so I graduated in 2003 and if you remember that was p- after the dot com bust right so recent college grads were not in high demand okay And my very first job out of school was at a large corporate behemoth insurance company. Okay. And Doing what? I won't name that company because I might (laughs) say some nice things about it. All right. I was a claims adjuster, which meant that it was a very entry-level job, but they said, hey, you can help people and you can speak Spanish occasionally. So those were my two kind of tipping points. I said, okay, yes, I'll do this. Uh, I graduated on a Friday and I started on a Monday. Um, I was very driven. I thought I had to have a job the second that I graduated from college. And I think my father said, well, if you want to stay in North Carolina, you, you know, you have to get a job. I believe he actually c- cut my credit card in half, um, Oh wow! which was hard at the time, but I'm very thankful that he did that. So I got the job before I graduated, claims adjuster. Every time someone got in an accident, I had to decide who was at fault.
0: Okay, wow.
1: Uh, let's just put it this way. The first day I walk in, it's a giant floor. There's cubicles everywhere. And the guy across from me was named Milton. Okay. And if you've seen Office Space.
0: Oh, I have seen Office Space. Okay. I love that movie.
1: So that was my next 15 months. <laughs> okay, all right. It was quite the shock.
0: Yeah, I bet. Uh, how far into it did you? were you like, okay, I, this is not for me?
1: Pretty early. Yeah. I mean, I try to stay positive and I try to look for the, I'm an optimist at heart, so I try to look for the upside, but um, wow, it, it was a really tough, half of everyone I talked to on the phone was furious at me. Sure. And I was just a cog in the big corporate behemoth, so I didn't have as much control. You know, people thought I had a giant checkbook, right? Right. But I could only give what the computer would allow me to give. Instead of making widgets, I just handed out insurance checks for people that hit each other in parking lots.
0: So was it the uh, the pressure from your dad uh, in wanting to stay in North Carolina and get a job right out of college that made you go into that? Or was this, like what when you started looking for your job, yeah. what were you looking for?
1: Well, you know how it is when you're in college. You, you start really high and then a little bit of reality kicks in, right? So if I'm honest, what I really wanted to work for Starbucks corporate. So this was, this was back in the late nineties. And I used to email every job at Starbucks in Seattle possible because I thought, you know, I like business. I love coffee. Like I need to go to Starbucks and work. Tell me more about that. But uh, you know, when you send your, your recent college grad resume out in the internet back in the late 90s, might as well be sending it into the abyss, right? right. So unfortunately Starbucks never called me. What? <laughs> never, right? <laughs> it's totally their loss. But uh, so I realized, okay, I've gotta get a job, like it's getting close to graduation and there are little jobs to be had. And I mean, I I graduated summa cum laude, I was in the honors program, I had opportunities, right? So I interviewed with lots of different companies, but I thought, you know, large insurance company, this is a good place to get a start. I will go here, take an entry level job. You know, start from the bottom. Right. Right because that's the mentality that I was raised with. You start from the bottom, you learn your way. You you learn the industry or you learn your and you work your way up. Yeah. So I thought this is a great place for me to start.
0: So where did you go after that? And what was your kind of decision-making process on on what to do differently?
1: So, you know, the insurance job was really tough, but it was, it was a great way for me to learn a lot about how to deal with the public, um, the general population, you know, because I'm sitting there dealing with tons of people and navigating this huge corporation. But one thing that was really surprising to me is that when it was time for me to get up for a promotion, the individual that kept me from getting that promotion was a woman. And that was crushing to me because I assumed that, you know, that women in the workforce were there to help each other and lift each other up and also thought naively that the glass ceiling had been shattered. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) that had to be
0: a harsh reality.
1: Uh, It was so painful, right? You you should have known 22-year-old Charlotte because she was fierce and she was going to you know, hold hands with other women in the workforce and we were gonna, you know, change the world.
0: So where, uh, where did this come from? Because not everybody has that, you know, you know that, that spirit of let's rise together.
1: You know, my parents raised me that as a female I could do whatever I wanted to do. So that was what I thought. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I, you know, they said if you work hard there's as much opportunity for you as anybody else. So it was sort of that why not you mentality. You can do it.
0: Right. So what what made you, uh, that I love, uh, I love all of it, but what made you then want to bring others with you or that we let's, let's community as well?
1: Um, I Because I that part of
0: it I think a lot of people don't have.
1: That's just how I'm wired. I've just very much, um, you know, relationships and connection and community have always been really important to me. The other people that I associated with in college were, you know, great women that also wanted to change the world. And, you know, that was just my first exposure to people that there's people that aren't are not always going to be for you.
0: Gotcha. Uh, So where did you end up going?
1: So I was also a spin instructor at the time Um, and a student in my spin class, I think I would you know, talk to the students after class. And I realized, hey, there's a lot of professional people that take my class and need to ask them about career opportunities. And I said, you know, I think I would be really good at sales. And an individual said, you know, you'd be great at financial services. Why don't you look into that industry? And I said, yeah, my dad's a financial advisor. Let me do that. And so he said, yeah, let me set you up with an interview. And so he actually had me interview with his company, and they were the employer-sponsored plan at Duke University Okay, the time. And so they offered me a job, and my father was a financial advisor who specialized in retirement plans, 401Ks, 403Bs. And the company that was offering me a job was his largest competitor.
0: Oh, no way.
1: Yeah, and so when I told my mom I was all excited, she said, oh, have you told your dad? And I said, no, I haven't told my dad. She said, you need to call him. I called him, he said, ah, uh, guys, you just can't work for them. And I said, well, why not? And long story short, he said, let me just call a few other companies and see what else is out there. And the economy had improved slightly. There was more opportunities. I had a little bit of experience under my belt. And so I was offered a job by a 401k company that also worked on the North Carolina state pension opt out plan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In English, that <laughs> I
0: think a lot of people would understand that. I just I'm not it's just not one of them.
1: Okay, so in English, that means when you are a university imp- professor at a certain level, you have a choice to go into the pension or put your money in a individual investment account.
0: Okay, y'all, so y'all would manage the pension money.
1: Right, yes, okay. yes. And there was four providers, so it was a competitive environment.
0: And you could go back for Thanksgiving dinner without having to work against your you know, father's company, working for the competitor.
1: Yes, yes. And it also offered me, they had 401ks all over the country, and so they said, hey, you can travel. And they were smart. Uh, the individual who was interviewing me brought me to lunch with two young females who, we had lunch, and I thought, I'm working for this company because these women seem awesome and I want to be friends with them. One of those individuals is one of my best friends 15 years later.
0: Oh, I love that. That's excellent. So, how long were you with this firm and did you enjoy the work?
1: I loved it. Yeah, I was with them. I started in 2004 and I left in 2007, two and a half, almost three years. So, and that was the point at which I got my securities license and, you know, really started my work in investing, kind of learned. What it meant to help people invest their money.
0: So, how do you learn in a job like this? Uh, are there mentors, or is it uh, sink or swim? Like, what's how do you how do you get your legs?
1: It it is it's a lot of sink or swim. Um, in this particular, this was a great place to start because we when let's just say when I traveled, we would go for a week and we would be at X Y Z Hospital. And by traveling, they didn't clarify where I'd be going. I went to exciting metropolises like uh, Tupelo, Mississippi.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: With the largest rural hospital in the south. So we would go set up shop for a week in a hospital cafeteria, and all the hospital employees would sign up for their 401k. Okay. And so we would just sit at a table, you know, 20 people a day, and help them pick the investments that were appropriate for their 401k based on their age and their life stage.
0: Okay. And did you enjoy working with the people individually?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Is that, is that what you call that part of the, your favorite kind of part of the job or is that, or is that...
1: Yeah, that's a great place to start, right? Because you're learning investments and you're learning kind of how people react to different investment, toler- you know, risk tolerances. So you're sort of learning and there wasn't a lot of sales involved in that aspect of it because there are the cases are already in place and you're just going out there and enrolling people. Okay. And then the other part of my job, the North Carolina pension state opt out plan. When we were not traveling, they said you have to have a territory and nobody wanted Eastern North Carolina. So they gave it to new person. Well, Eastern North Carolina has, um, ECU. You've probably heard of the university and they have a med school there. Okay. And so every July, the med school hires a bunch of new people because that's how medicine works, right? July 1. Yeah. Okay. And so hundreds of people would come and they would all get professor status because it was a university. And so then they would choose who they were going to put their investments with. And so there are four companies to choose from and I work for one of the companies that was an option. So it was me. I was twenty three at the time, and four mature gentlemen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that dynamic.
1: Wow, that was, that was interesting. Um, so I realized, here I am, I'm going to stand up again. I'm going to stand up in front of professors, and what was happening at East Carolina at the time was the inventor of the gamma knife, which was really innovative surgery at the time was attracting cardiologists from all over the world. So the people that were coming to ECU were uh, very different than the geographic region. East Carolina is in, you know, eastern part of the state of North Carolina, very rural, very, um, it's almost, it's protected. It's a very interesting place. It's just very protected in regionalism in a good way, meaning that it's sort of time has stopped there. It's very Mayberry, put it that way. Okay, um, but it was interesting to have all these people come from all over the world to this teeny tiny town in the rural South, you know, that are working at this institution. But I did, I digress. Back to me. So I realized that here I am, the young blonde female that's going to have to be up against these guys, this presentation, and I would be so nervous about it. It would be July, so June would just be really stressful. So my strategy was to be just like them. I bought uh, gray suits and black suits from Brooks Brothers so that I could minimize my difference, right? So we would all stand up and we would all get time to give our spiel. And here I was, just so different from them and terrified, right? Because they're the more typical investment advisor. And I'm the different. And I still remember the very first doctor that decided he was gonna work with me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, I can tell that you're very passionate and you're very committed about this, and that you're going to really care about my money and my investments in a way that the other people are not.
0: That's gotta be uh, pretty amazing, and pretty, uh, it's gotta reinforce a lot of things that you already had in you, I imagine.
1: It was, but There was a lot of no's before that yes showed up. So that was the turning point where I thought, you know what? I can do this. I'm just as good as they are. I don't look like them. I don't have the years of experience, but I have the desire and the knowledge, and I have the exact same licenses as they do. Right. You know, I passed the same securities exams that they did. Yeah. And so I really cut my teeth in North Carolina, and I also befriended an HR director. There, who I took an interest in her. She took an interest in me. She was probably 40 years my senior and she had a desire to reach down and and help me help another woman to succeed. So looking back now at what she did, it was pretty incredible. She would call doctors into her office and say, Hey, I noticed you're not participating in the retirement plan. Well, Charlotte is here from XYZ financial company. Why don't you come meet with her?
0: that's amazing
1: it is amazing and at the time I didn't realize the power of what she was I knew that she was helping me out and that was significant but I didn't realize the broader spectrum that what she was doing was to help make another female successful in a male-dominated industry
0: that's that's incredible Mm -hmm. Uh, where are you living at the time are you in Raleigh
1: Raleigh North Carolina commuting over yeah yeah I went there once a week it was an hour away so I became successful in that territory and at East Carolina signing people up and then the other people from my company, you know, there was a comment made one time, well, gosh, if we would have known that ECU is a golden nugget of North Carolina. Well, of course. <laughs> so the new kid got the, uh, the leftover territory and I ended up turning it into a very, uh, profitable, positive career move. That's
0: amazing. Um, how are you defining success at that time? Did you have, were you thinking long-term goals or were you just like, let's make this work? Um, And have you changed that? Be nice if I didn't ask three questions it all in be, one, it would, would it? <laughs> so at the time, do you, if you you may not remember like yeah, what d- you were thinking. I you do know, at the goal, time.
1: Right? I mean, you know, any type of job where you're going to be in either sales or investments or um, you know, it, it's tough, right? So they have certain goals that they're putting on you. Right. So the day to day goal was to meet the draw, meet the numbers, meet the you know, sign up as many people as you needed. Get the, get the numbers, really. So it was more of a day-to-day success, you know, than quarter, like meet your quarterly goals, meet them the next quarter.
0: Right, and do you uh, did you enjoy that type of environment, that kind of pressure?
1: Yeah, I loved it. I realized really quickly what I did not like at the insurance company is you clock in, you clock out, you make the same amount of money no matter how hard you work. Gotcha. That did not fit my personality. Okay. And so I wanted to be in an environment where I was going to be let's just say if we tie success to a monetary measure, then I wanted that to be directly reflected to how well I was doing. Makes sense. And so if I had a rough month, I wanted to feel it. And if I had a great month, I wanted to reap those rewards.
0: And how long did you stay with this firm?
1: Two and a half years, and I loved it. Um, During that time, I got married and... I my husband wasn't in love with his job at the time and so I knew he was probably going to make a change and I also realized what I enjoyed the most about that job was working with individuals. And so I realized that I could continue doing that, but that was more of a job. It wasn't going to be building a business or, you know, as a financial advisor, you have to build on your your practice. And so that was not, you know, every year in that job, you started at zero. You just start over. Okay. So I wanted something more long-term and I thought, you know, maybe I should go work with my dad. He has this practice in Atlanta. Let's just give it a go. I've been gone eight years. Maybe I'll, you know, work with him and see how that goes.
0: Right. Uh Um, That can be uh, like a wonderful thing and also can be a horrible thing working with family. Uh, How did y'all kind of manage that uh, certainly in the beginning too?
1: There's something I always say about working with your parent is that you find out who they really are. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what I saw in my dad that he has more integrity than I even thought he had. So working with him was a really incredible experience because he what he did for people, he would do, you know, he's a servant. He has a servant heart. And so he did things with people that basically he worked for free sometimes, you know? Okay. And so he would always make the right decision for the client. And he ran an incredible practice in that sense.
0: Um, so just give me a little bit of story of uh, starting with your dad in the firm and... When did you know it was a good fit?
1: Well, timing, you know, play is an important part of life. We can all agree on that, right? Sure. So I came in 2007, which, if you keep up with stock market, um, I showed up just in time for the bottom to fall out. <laughs> when I showed up, you know, and I had my license, I had experience working in North Carolina, so it wasn't like I showed up without any knowledge, but. I quickly, as soon as the market imploded, it became um, triage. So, literally, the phones would ring all day long, and I would have to sit on the other line and assure people that I was going to be okay. Golly! So he had spent, you know, twenty-five years at that point building this business, and because he had a large employer case, you know, there'd be a thousand participants that, you know, typically they're not calling, you don't hear from them until they open up their statement and realize their 401K is a 201K. Yeah. That was an incredibly intense, difficult time. I'm, there's a lot of PTSD for anyone who's worked in the finance industry during that time. So, you know, I could just now talk about it. And and realize, yeah, I keep as a momentum the copy of the Wall Street Journal, the day that Lehman's fell, the day that AIG was in question and Those are markers that I felt like there will be a day where I want to be able to pull this out and say, if I could do that, I can do anything.
0: That's amazing. I saw that photograph and I didn't know that was like your photograph. Uh, You know, I didn't know that was something you had personally taken. Yeah. Uh,
1: I have them in that box over there and they're going to be framed because I'm ready. It's taken 10 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what did you learn about humans and what did you learn about yourself and having to deal with that situation?
1: Wow. I learned a lot about behavioral finance at that time, which is that human nature is not wired to, to we're not wired to be investors, right? Because as an investor, one of the hardest things to do is to stick it out when it is the most painful, right? And you always hear uh, buy low, sell high. Well, show me an individual that knows how to do that, you know, and I'd like to shake his hand. Right. Like it's his, a great idea. His name is Warren Buffett and that's, and Warren Buffett has one of my favorite quotes about investing. He says, Investing is simple but not easy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So I learned a lot ab- about myself. I learned that when you are on the other end of helping somebody and it's very, very tough, you know, you should take care of yourself. I did not do a great job taking care of myself. My stress level was extremely high at that point. Um, I also learned that. Fear and greed rule the world, and <sighs> fear is something that causes human nature to behave irrationally. But I, when people were yelling and screaming, crying on the phone because all that happened every single day, um, I could draw from my experience at the large insurance company because people yelled at me when I had to, you know, indicate that the accident was their fault and we were not going to pay for it. Right. So it's funny how you do a bunch of things in life that all add up to help you be better at your next step.
0: And you're gaining skills and experiences and you're not even or it sounds like you may have been even aware at the time, though it sounds like you might have been. But I think you're absolutely right.
1: No, I had no idea no one had any idea what you know that the bottom was gonna fall out of the stock market and then everyone's gonna panic and um, you know, that's just sort of a surreal period of time, right? Because you know as a financial professional it's happening and you know, you're sitting there every single day we call other professionals and, be, and, and have conversations like, can you believe that Bank of America is trading at $3 a share? And it feels like Armageddon to you alone in your office. But the general public doesn't realize it until they open their statements the next quarter and they realize how much money they've lost. Right. So it's sort of like being in the eye of the storm of a hurricane when you're like, hey, it's sunny and beautiful. And then you know that it's going to start whipping around in kicking your ass, golly! And it happened, and that's exactly, you know, exactly how it felt. Like we were in the eye of the storm, watching Wall Street crumble, knowing that we were the ones that were going to have to help Main Street weather the storm.
0: What uh, what is the atmosphere like within the within the company? Are y'all like kind of bounded together? I, this is us against the world. We're going to make this happen. We're going to help people. Or or is it is it does infighting occur at this point? Like what is what's the mood of the company?
1: Yeah, I think that you do, you're sort of in the trenches together. And so and that was a bond, you know, a great experience with my dad. He he and I were together just, you know, at the end of the day you just kind of look at each other and you'd be okay. The interesting thing is look if if you look at pictures of him um before and after that, he ages faster. And I probably did too but you age faster in a two year time period than he did in the last 10 years. Yeah, I'm sure. Because of the stress and, but yeah, it, it is a there's a strong camaraderie in difficult things.
0: So when did uh, you decide that you wanted to, to run a company?
1: <laughs> so I, wor- I worked for him for about t- t- 10 years. Nine it was about nine years, and I think at that point it was always kind of an understood that eventually I would take over the business. I'd had two children at that point and I was ready to you know I was ready I don't, I, it's hard to explain, but I just I kind of watched the evolution of the things that we'd been through with clients and stock market, but also. I was just getting to a point where I had sat on the ship long enough and I was ready to steer the ship. Yeah, And so we did have a triggering event where the largest employer case at the time decided to essentially fire us and go with another provider. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was a change, which I realized our revenue sources were going to shift quickly. And that what had made us successful in the past was not going to make us successful in the future. And so I couldn't sit back and just kind of business as usual. right? And I think, and my dad and I had open conversations about that. So he knew that as well, but I really wanted to have the opportunity to steer the new direction and I wanted the pressure. Yeah. I I say that now I I didn't know what was about to happen, but um, I was ready to, take the changes that I thought were gonna be necessary. What what got you here isn't gonna get you there.
0: Yeah, and it's so difficult a lot of times in multi-generational businesses to, to to manage that transition. How how did y'all do? Yes,
1: so we had a very stressful year where it's interesting when someone's trying to sell their business child to their actual child. Right. And I've been asked about that several times. Um, you know but when we walked in the door in a negotiation setting we became business seller and business buyer not father and daughter
0: it's got to be the only way to do it and then be able to come back and you know enjoy dinners together right
1: yeah and there was a period where we probably had to distance ourselves when it was really in the thick of it and there was a few CPAs that would you know just run away as fast as they could because we would openly fight and conference rooms about the terms but I feel like you know through open conflict we were able to agree upon the best end result for both parties.
0: Gotcha. Uh, Any advice you would give to someone going through a similar
1: process? Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) I think as much as you can try to understand that it's somebody's you know, especially a business that somebody has built from nothing, it's their business child. And so you have to take that understanding, but at the same time, you have to really fight for what you need in order to take it to the next step. So it's it's definitely tough. Yeah,
0: I believe you. Uh, I want to zoom out just a bit. Uh, What makes a good investment advisor?
1: So being a, An investment advisor is part art and part science, right? Because no one can predict the future. And so you have to use all your knowledge of conventional wisdom that we study from past market scenarios, what's happened in the past, different investments. And you have to marry it with the human in front of you. So you really have to help that human, you know, and human nature to help them get the best outcome knowing that they might struggle when things get really tough, you know, so allowing them to take just enough risk because you know that they need long-term growth, but along with that is going to come ups and downs. So I think it really takes a deep knowledge of investments, obviously, which can be learned and also a deep knowledge of understanding human nature.
0: Yeah. What do you uh, read, watch, or listen to like on the regular that kind of keeps you informed? Like what are your inputs that you're using?
1: So I do the typical, you know, there's a lot of economists and a lot of the invest, you know, investment companies that I work with are really good about disseminating knowledge to financial advisors. But then I also try to read behavioral economists. So Dr. Daniel Crosby has written Laws of Wealth, Behavioral Investor, which are really great books uh, for anybody, not just investment advisors. Uh, there's also a lot of colleagues. You know, I do a good job of keeping up with people in my industry so I can kind of know what's on the forefront, kind of what's going on. And FinTech, financial technology, has been a really huge change in the industry. So there's a lot of companies out there that are really – you know, disrupting, not to use that popular word, right. but I try to keep in touch with them and what they're doing and try to learn from other advisors that are using their technology.
0: And what books would you recommend for the layperson besides the ones you just mentioned too? Uh to kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be many, but just one or two that would kind of give somebody more of a financial footing.
1: Oh gosh, there's so many. Um you know, what I'm reading now is I Will Teach You to Be Rich, which is by... Ramit Sethi, right? Yes. I like Ramit. Yeah. And I think that his concept about um, rethinking the term rich, what does that mean? It, it coincides with my philosophy is that money is just a resource to help you live a life that you want to live. And I truly believe that I I want my clients to understand that. And we do goals-based financial planning, which means that you know, I don't want you to hire me if you're looking for the biggest number on a piece of paper. I want you to hire me to be your investment advisor if you're looking to use your money to help you accomplish the, the life that you are set out to live, live life to the full. So if that means uh, charity or if that means trips or travel or experiencing, I want you to use your money to live your life, not just to have a big number on a piece of paper.
0: So how do you help clients think that way? What tools do you have, or what, what's worked to get them? Because I imagine that's not easy to do, and it's probably not easy for them to open up as well about you know being very honest about you know what they really think and feel.
1: Yeah, that is challenging. I'm trying to, especially if I work with a lot of uh, retirees who you know their big question is, can I retire? And At that token, they've worked really hard just to save and accumulate dollars. And so I'm trying to help them understand that how can we help you to spend these dollars in a way that allows you to maintain or even enhance your lifestyle, but still have that longevity. So I'll show them some, I use some visual financial planning tools, which help people to kind of see what the money looks like over a 30 year time span. Like, what would happen if we took out X amount of money over 30 years, and then they can see on a screen, oh, I still have money left over. You know, so they can kind of, we do projections, which is a moving target, right? We can't predict the future, but what it allows us to do is to help people focus less on the percentages. Like, oh, I got 8% return last year. I don't really care. I care, were you able to, to take the trip that you wanted to, you've always been looking forward to you know can you afford to do that if you can't I will tell you and those are hard conversations and I've had to (laughs) have had to have them but at the same time the best conversations I get to have are hey guess what you can take out more money and I've specifically had people hire me because I will approve of their travel budget (laughs) I'm one of the few financial advisors who will encourage you to take money out
0: yeah and because the, I guess the norm or the, the, the usual standard would be just, you know, trying to maximize profit the entire time or? Yeah. Okay.
1: So I'm, I really try to get my clients off the number and onto the goals. Yeah. And a lot of times let's say that you've done a great job and you're a good saver. You might not need to get double digits. Maybe a 5% return will get you what you need. So you don't need to take the risk. Or if you're behind, maybe we do need to take a little bit more risk. But I want people to focus on the purpose of the money and not just getting a big fat return.
0: Who is your ideal client?
1: That's a great question, Michael. That makes up for
0: my uh, asking three in one sentence earlier.
1: I have three clients that we serve really well. One is retirees. I love working with retirees. I'm a charter retirement planning counselor, so I've specialized a lot of my training in that. So the individual that's in the red zone of retirement, they might be five years or less into retirement, and they want to hire me to see if they can retire. And then a lot of times they hire me to manage their retirement dollars, and I'm literally, you know, our firm is cutting them a check every month, and they're no longer having to worry about the money. Really? Mm -hmm. It's
0: that precise, I mean, that hands-on. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm
1: -hmm. And so we're managing all their retirement dollars. They leave um, Southern Company or AT&T, and they roll over their entire 401k, and we manage it for them. So that's our client type number one. Client type number two is women in transition. So we get a lot of women who suddenly become in control of their financial lives in a way they never have before, whether that be through death or divorce. Typically, and so I really enjoy working with those clients because I want to help financially empower women to feel that they can do it and they can be in control and that they don't have the worry and the concern. You know, money is a big concern and it's a huge cause of stress in a lot of people's lives. So, a lot of times when a woman in particular has never been in charge of her finances and, you know, she suddenly becomes the lead financial person in her, you know, in her own life. Right. You know, I think that there's a lot of value that we can help by partnering beside her. And the third type of client we serve is a young professional who needs a financial roadmap. So they will hire us and pay a fee and they will say, Hey, it's almost like a financial well check.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like in those situations, we may or may not manage the money, but they will pay us. We will take a look at everything they have, their tax returns, their 401K, where the money is going, help them understand if they're putting enough towards retirement or enough towards college savings, and just kind of give them a financial roadmap and a financial well check.
0: Yeah. What, um, I think there's a nonprofit you worked with that kind of works with yeah. young people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, first of all, I wish my mom would have had somebody like you because when my dad passed away, You know, she was left in this situation and didn't know really. And so she passed down her knowledge to me, which was nothing. And, you know, so this is where I am. But I mean, I just think it's so important for people to learn about money, especially when they're young. Will you talk about what you're doing with that?
1: Yeah. So I have a real passion for financial literacy and helping young people. There's an organization called Kinrod, which is going into schools that might be under resourced to help students kind of understand things beyond just the academics. And one of the areas they touch on is just financial awareness. So I go in and do talks. I call them money 101 talks, just giving people a really base basic knowledge of um, credit and how it works. And one of my favorite examples is, Hey, if you, you know, pay a thousand dollars for a TV and you get a high rate credit card, have you ever realized how much interest you're paying that company you know so I just want them to see in different ways how how money works it can work for you and it can work against you Uh,
0: what are you teaching your children about money how how, I I don't know how old they are but
1: so I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Um
0: so have you started with that?
1: Yeah, we do allowance and my nine-year-old, he he's definitely grasping the concepts, but it's backfiring on me because now he's going around asking people how much their house cost. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to I'm trying to feel out <laughs> the line between um, you know, we also live in the south and just in our culture. It's not really polite to talk about money, right, so I would like there to be a way for people to kind of openly talk about it in a way that's not judgmental, but I, you know we're still trying to feel that out with my nine year old so he's having a grasp of what money is, and you know, I make him go to the grocery store if he wants to buy like an extra Gatorade, and then he has to count it out. Everyone in the checkout line behind me is like cursing me out <laughs>
0: he's, <doing> the <laughs> he's counting out. it, yeah. Uh, that's amazing! By the way, yeah, uh, you have to download Zillow for them. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what uh, What advice would you give parents with talking uh, about finances to their children?
1: I would say don't make it a taboo subject. So go ahead and start having that conversation. Um, I took my kids to Alon's for breakfast the other day. It's a great, wonderful bakery. You should go there. And I said, "Wow, that was twenty dollars," and they're like, really? And then my son said, well, you should have drank coffee at home. And I said, well, yes. Thank you, Nate. That was a good idea. <laughs> coffee. I know. Um, but, you know, so that way they kind of know even the basic things. Talk about it. I think they need to be aware of how much things cost. I would say start conversations. Talk about money. Talk about it early and often. I'm actually working on a children's book. I need to continue working on it. but. A way to help children kind of understand money a little bit better
0: that's a great idea what uh, are you enjoying the writing process
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> most writers enjoy having written not necessarily the actual writing right Would you right. fall into that camp as well
1: um ask me later <laughs> okay I understand
0: <laughs> I get that so you are you. You buy the firm from from your father. Uh-huh. You need to go in a new direction. What direction did you choose to go to? And and what was uh, what were you think? What were the other options? I guess. Well, what made you pick the direction you did?
1: You know, back to what got you here is not going to get you there. Right. So any business owner has to look at where the revenue is coming from and where it's going to come from in the future. And so I I realized also the type of client that I wanted to work with and what we were kind of going for what was our vision and our mission. And so I realized that we needed to focus more on individual clients and we did large employer plans. So that was sort of the main focus and the change. And I also realized uh, the current staff that was in place at the time was just kind of happy to clock in and clock out and that in order for us to really you know, go out there and serve the clients, the individual clients at the next level and do a lot more financial planning. That was going to take a lot more engagement from everybody involved. So we really had to restructure everything, I guess.
0: <laughs> that had to be incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, and I knew when, it, when I purchased the business that there was going to have to be changes. I And I had projected that it was going to be a five-year change and I my goal was in five years we're gonna rebrand we're gonna relocate and we're gonna rehire well what happened was my five-year plan happened in 11 months not (laughs) not by choice Uh, a few chain of events kind of happened rapidly one is the office building in Swanee was sold and I I knew it was going to go for sale, but I thought, oh, for sure, it's going to take a while to sell. A building in, you know, in the suburbs, you know, like six months. It took ten days. <laughs> the uh, business partner at the time. So that was the first thing that happened. The business sold. My business partner at the time decided he wanted to stay in Gwinnett, and I was looking to move inside the perimeter because our client base was really growing. We're having a lot more clients inside the perimeter, and so he broke up with me and I had to fire the entire staff. So within 10 days I was office homeless. My business partner broke up with me and I had one person working for me. So that was a low point. That was the end of 2017. That was what I call my, um, you know, that was my business owner rock bottom, I guess. And, uh, Part of, you know, buying a business, you have a really big loan. You have a really big business payment, right? Right. And I owed that to my father, which, of course, that's even a stronger sense of pressure. Completely. Yeah. So I found myself one evening in the bathtub with a bottle of wine, blasting Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> and my husband said, man, you had to know this was coming. Like, you were breaking up with him before he broke up with you. You know, it just all of a sudden his name was on the door, so we had to rebrand. He's a great guy and he runs a great practice in Gwinnett. So all this stuff that I wanted to happen in five years happened in one year. So that was really stressful. And all the the time I had to, you know, kind of share it with clients and tidbits, right? Okay. Because you as a small business, you know, and you're handling clients most valuable resource besides their family right their money so we had to think that the messaging that we sent to our clients is that we're this is from a position of strength right you know we've got together these are all good things this is all good I just didn't have the answers figured out at the time so we relocated to Cobb Galleria for six months which is not close to me my clients or anything but it was
0: (laughs) but it was available at the time
1: it was available yes and we did it the Saturday before Christmas. That was crazy. We had one staff member who I had hired, and everybody else I had to let go at the end of the year. Which was that was a very positive um, change. It's just when you're, I call our, I call ourselves a micro business because we're super small, right? And so when you lose two employees in a micro business,
0: because this is after the the, I guess the larger firing that had.
1: No, this yeah yeah we were uh, four advisors, three staff. So then we went to three advisors, one staff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's huge practice for one staff member too. I believe you. Yeah. So I said, "Hey," um, and she was my first hire. So when I bought the practice, I knew I wanted her to come with me, and I said, "You know, I'm going to grow something great." this is what I want to do. This is my vision. This is my mission. I love working with clients. This is what I'm really good at. Let's do this. And I said, are you with me? She said, yeah. But she had no idea where she was going. (laughs) Like you said yes. (laughs) And then I looked at her when all this went down and I said, you know, are you still with me? Like, you know, are you my ride and die? So, and she's my unicorn. Um, I'm very thankful to have her with me and she's the best business thing that's happened to me through this process. So, yeah, she and I find ourselves January one, two thousand eighteen, with boxes everywhere, and our name, you know, was no longer valid because one of the partners didn't wasn't there anymore. So we had to, you know, start from scratch in that sense. So I joke that I got my MBA in hard knocks.
0: <laughs> yeah. How did so? How did you rebrand? How does one rebrand a financial uh, services company?
1: So I took this as an opportunity, this change, to really focus on what it is that we do differently. And I hired a branding firm, which was hard for me at a time when I had all this uncertainty about where we were going to be, where was our physical location going to be, what was our staffing structure going to look like. I think one of the most difficult things about owning a business is investing in the business at difficult points. Right. So at a point when you feel like, gosh, I can't spend money doing this. That's when you have to, right? That's sort of like investing when the fear is the greatest and you feel like I've got to get out of the market. That's when you should buy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that is so hard to do, right? It
1: is so hard to do. I, I talk a lot about courage and I think that good business owners and good business leaders have to have a lot of courage because the definition of courage is doing difficult things at difficult times. Yeah. So uh, the branding firm we hired was amazing. They're called Proper ATL.
0: So how did you find them? Friend of a friend. Okay.
1: You know, networking.
0: Did you interview other firms? I did. And what separated them?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I could tell he was really good at what he did. Um, Jason, who's their owner, he had left another firm and their price was high for me as a micro business. So the sticker shock was big. But I realized I would almost rather spend that than pay myself at the time because I don't know, I just sort of knew after talking to him, once again, his passion and his commitment to what he did. I could tell he was so passionate about what he did that I realized that's who I wanted to help us rebrand. And rebranding became like a mission cry for me. I basically hired him to tell me what I do. Oh, interesting. It was awesome. The whole process was incredible. I kind of joke that I'm going to hire him every year to remind me what I do. Because I think so much in life, you just, you get caught in the daily grind and you forget the bigger purpose and the bigger mission. So he really fired me up, fired us up and kind of ignited the whole next step. You know, excitement. So that helped me move from place of discouragement to place of extreme optimism and hope.
0: Well, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you how do you how does one how do you get clients? Like, I, I really don't know. Like, how do, where where are you marketing to? And, and
1: that's a great question. Um, it, by virtue of us, you know, we've been in business for thirty years, so there is a tremendous amount of referrals that we get from people that we've helped add value to their life, their financial life. So, you know, retired people have a lot of time on their hands. So they hang out with their friends a lot. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So we get referrals from people. We still have a relationship with the employer-sponsored plan. So a lot of people come to us having left, you know, the 401Ks. And then I am hoping that a lot of my marketing efforts are going to help attract newer clients.
0: Gotcha. Um, Just from the little bit I was able to tell, it seems like you do a very good job of getting yourself in uh, in front of cameras and microphones. Is that been something you've? Is that a priority? Is that um, that, the? Tell me about that, or am I am I wrong?
1: No, that's that's a good observation. Um, As my friend in the business said. Gosh, Charlotte, you are everywhere now.
0: Well, no, that's, there's nothing better, right? That's what you want to hear.
1: Oh, gosh. I am trending on LinkedIn, so. Shut <laughs> up. Outstanding. Uh, when I rebranded, I made a commitment to to kind of use that effort to propel me to get out there. And people don't know what you do unless you tell them. And I've spent probably the first 10 years of my career with my head down just kind of plowing through and working on clients. And I always felt like there was a certain amount of vanity with putting yourself out there in front of microphones, but something changed in me where I realized, Hey, I do have the confidence. I do know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm really good at it too. I'm a great financial advisor an investment advisor and retirement planner, and people need to know about that. And then the brand exercise helped me realize that to create a brand you know and really get traction you have to put yourself out there yeah so that has been the 2019 goal
0: it's working thank you <laughs> what uh what advice would you give to me <laughs> and anybody else listening who who knows that everything you're saying is exactly right however they have not been able to get over that hump is there anything you would say that that might help them
1: so I'll tell you what I tell my nine-year-old every day <laughs> Outstanding what is confidence believing in yourself? Okay. So I think every single time you put yourself out there on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, you are believing in yourself that you have something to share. And I think too, there has to be a lot of, and I, you know, I'm the wrong person to ask about social media. I'm still kind of learning. I'm a work in progress, but People have to see something seven times for them to even take traction of it, right? So I kind of see that as, okay, I'm going to have to do this once a week. You know, I'm going to have to tweet once a week. I'm going to have to Instagram once a week, you know, just to kind of get out there. And momentum is also another extremely strong force of nature, right? So when I started this, it's sort of one thing led to another and another you know, it just sort of seems to be building on each other. Right. And another thing I enjoy public speaking. So I'm doing a lot of talks for women's groups and, um, how to help females feel financially empowered. And yeah. so part of my reasoning for getting out there is to make people aware of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, a buzzword or a buzz phrase, you know, representation matters, but it does. It just does. Yeah. And if you see other people like you doing things and, That gives you the spark that you can. And this seems to go back a little bit to your embracing the difference between you and those other, you know, the other gentlemen, you know, when you were pitching in Eastern Carolina, um, have you been able to help you think other people do the same thing, especially, you know, women in your industry?
1: Yeah, I hope so. I think I did have the head down mentality for so long and then something happened. I think when I bought the business and realized, Hey, I've been doing this for 10 years, I've been through the worst economic you know downturn that we've had in a hundred years i can do this and i'm no longer going to hide my difference i'm going to own it and it just like i found my inner warrior and also being a mom helped that right so those two things combine. i said you know what i'm not gonna like i am a blonde female and i wear pink and i'm a great investment advisor and you can be both
0: that's right they're not mutually exclusive
1: no they're not
0: um so it, how do you divide your day or your month between running the business are you, are you still servicing individual clients as well or oh
1: yeah yeah I'm the primary yes I am working mostly with clients that has been most of my time working on clients
0: okay so tell me how you kind of manage that because it seems like they could be right you know right angles
1: so back to Claire my unicorn she is my chief of staff So, she and I both have the same vision and understanding, and we kind of work on that together. And then I outsource everything. I outsource payroll. I outsource. I have a bookkeeper. Um, You know, I'm outsourcing of another staff member who's extremely talented, who helps me. She's my paraplanner. So, she helps run a lot of the, like a paralegal.
0: Okay. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Because when you're, you're dealing with financial planning, there's a lot of data and a lot of numbers, right? So it takes some time to input all that stuff. And okay. I'm also leveraging technology. So a lot of these fintech companies that I work with can really help me manage money quickly. And technology allows me to create time.
0: How do you, uh, is it Claire? Mm-hmm. So how do you and Claire uh, stay on the same page? Do you all have weekly meetings? Do you all have daily check-ins? We like,
1: have daily check-ins. Mm-hmm.
0: And those are at the same time every day? Or is it kind of something you just know is going to happen during the day?
1: Yeah, um, it is. And we're also trying to do time blocking. So Claire ran an organization business before she came to work for me. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> right. And we so she- are going
0: to listen to this and try to steal her.
1: I already put a ring on it. She's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. Um, Yeah. So Claire also helps me to understand and read books about time blocking um, efficiency. And so she keeps us all really structured. We're trying time blocking where we put all of our client meetings. We call them client surges. Or so I'm just meeting back to back to back to back to back clients.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I'll have the next two days to kind of implement the investment trades that we talked about and those types of things. So that's helping... Um, other things that are helping, outsourcing what we can. Unfortunately, I've had to work really long hours the past three years. So I'm looking forward to getting some of the business kind of on automatic pilot so that I can work a little bit less and still offer great value.
0: Yeah. Do you recall any of the books that uh, you and Claire used to to, uh, to learn and then you could recommend?
1: Yeah, I would say the classic book for any business owners, The E-Myth. That's a great one. Um the time blocking book. Her name is Laura Vanderkamp, that's the author. She's written several. Okay. But she talks about looking in time, not necessarily a day, but a week. And so we use this metric that has a certain amount of goals so that it you know, have we reached out to X amount of clients this week? So it's it's taking off the pressure of each day. Right. You know, it's just putting time in a weekly format versus a daily format.
0: That's cool. And uh, I'll link to all these, uh, you know, books, anything you mentioned in the show Mm -hmm. notes. And if you think of any other, you know, you can email me and I'll put those in there as well. Um, I read you spoke at one of your clients' funerals. Is that true?
1: It is true. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? I I will. That was one of the highest honors of my career. So a, a gentleman who was, in his late 60s was a lawyer, hired me to be his financial advisor and manage his retirement money and we had a, a really great professional relationship. And I think that he, his family chose me to speak at his funeral because in a lot of ways I was an unlikely choice to be his financial advisor, right? Because, I mean, if you look at me, I look very different. I'm a, you know, blonde, younger female and so I think that represented something about his character is that he looked at people's ability and not what they look like because that was a, a theme amongst the various individuals that spoke at his funeral.
0: Oh, wow. That's yeah. really cool.
1: So that was a really incredible experience for me. I've never felt greatest honor or pressure.
0: <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. Uh, will you talk a little bit about... Uh, you know, women in your workforce, and I know the percentages are very low, and I'm curious what are the kind of the overt and the covert uh, causes of that, did you think? And
1: Yeah, there's about 17% of females in the industry, and the numbers get worse for females under 40. It's like 5%. Um, There's lots of reasons. I think one, I think you mentioned earlier where you said a lot of females don't see this as a career potential for them because they don't see other females that are in these types of roles. So the industry is trying to change that. I think another reason is it's difficult. It's it's competitive in a lot of sense and you really have to be, in, in some sense, you have to be tough, right? And so it might not be an attractive career choice for females, but I think they're looking at all the negatives and not the positive. I think females are really well suited for this career because there, there is a, so much of a relational aspect to it. Right. And the, um, you know, and I think wall street has a bad rap, right. For not being very female friendly. So that takes a long time to overcome. I think that we're still as an industry working, on that and trying to make it more favorable. It's also, I think, a tough place. It's changing, but if, as a culture, we think that women are not good as mo- at money, it's gonna be more difficult for them to succeed, right? Right. And so I, I think that I've, I do have to overcome that bias a lot, and especially when I was younger. You know, people don't say it, but you can see how people look at you, right? And they're thinking, how, how can you manage my money But I really think that that's changing
0: Yeah good That, that That's a good thing mm-hmm. uh, I read in an article that you were interviewed on You were talking about kind of uh, Mentioning some things that not only you would kind of teach your, your Kids but also teach other people And I just want you to kind of expound A little bit on it because I found it extremely Cool and helpful uh, You said compound interest is the eighth wonder Of the world <laughs> so get started as soon as possible <laughs> Tell me more about that
1: well, can I ask you a question? Of course.
0: Okay, it's a conversation, not an interview. Well, a little bit of both, but
1: okay. If I gave you a choice today of doubling a penny every day for thirty days, or taking five million dollars, which would you rather have?
0: <laughs> I would. I'll, I'll choose the five million dollars.
1: Right. If you yeah. double penny every day for thirty-one days, I would give you ten million over ten million dollars at the end of that. Really? Yeah. So that's an example of compound interest. I mean, that's an extreme example, right? Yeah. And no one's going to do that for you. Let's let's be clear. (laughs) No financial professional. That that is just an example. But I think that, um, you know, and that's one of the things I teach when I go and do financial literacy. Is compound interest is like a fall of the dominoes. It works for you. It works against you. When you are using credit cards or credit, you know, if you buy furniture and they have a credit, the compound interest is working against you. You're paying someone else. When you put money away and it accumulates over time, the dominoes are falling towards you and you're paying yourself. Gotcha. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah, so that's like the number one concept of money I want young people to understand because they are going to look at credit and student loans different and I'd rather see people be paying themselves, right? And th- for them to keep that interest.
0: I'll buy that, and I'll buy that. Uh, you have knowing what you have is critical to knowing where you're going. What does that mean?
1: So one of the number one things that I see individuals in financial planning is that they have all these different accounts and they just don't really know what they have. They don't know, is it a retirement account? Is it not a retirement account? So one of the greatest things that we can do as financial advisors and and when you hire us to, to give you a financial plan is to very clearly state everything that you have and what it's going to do for you. Like, why do you have this account? What is it going to do one day? Because I think a lot of people, you know, life is so busy, and that the long-term financial planning is not something that it is really interesting to you, right? So you're not going to do it on a day-to-day basis, right? And so it takes you stepping away from things, maybe hiring someone, getting it done, you know, and it, it can be not fun at times for people, right? Like no one enjoys doing taxes. Yeah, no, I don't know, I. There might be some people that enjoy doing taxes, but financial planning can feel a little like that. So you might as well hire a coach like us to make you do it.
0: How do you get investors over um shame? Is there shame?
1: Yes, that is that is happening. And you know what? I'm afraid that a lot of that prevents a lot of people from hiring us that really need to, right? Is because they're saying you know they're bearing their financial lives to us right so in a lot of sense it's like they're getting financially naked in front of us and they're having to say hey i spend more than i make or i have not saved enough for retirement and it's funny because people open up with that or um, if if a woman sometimes like if she recently becomes a widow she's embarrassed that she wasn't paying attention you know sure so i try to work on that and really help people to change their mentality around that so in a lot of sense we operate as a therapist
0: in that capacity that makes sense
1: and we want to empower people and to not be scared of their financial picture whether it's good or bad knowledge is power
0: amen (laughs) uh number three on the tips you had was uh sometimes time is your best investment market timing is not a game you can win but if you put time in the market you will reap the rewards is this you don't lose money until you actually sell, so stay in it. Yeah, Is that yeah,
1: it? yeah. That's just a play on, um, you know, peop, like the news loves to get clicks and view views based on sensational headlines, right? So what happened last week? The Dow Jones was down eight hundred points, and everybody's freaking out. Um, but really, you know, our advice in most situations would be stick to your plan, right? Because yeah. it's not. Your timing of the market, it's your time in the market. Gotcha. So if you look at the long haul of the stock market over a 30 year time period, it's higher than it was when you started. So I've
0: read that those kind of market reports, or like I guess the news coverage of the market reports, you know, oftentimes they'll make it sound like the market did X and it's because of Y. I've heard that's all bullshit. (laughs) You know, that they're. Is that true is it bullshit or is it you know how direct? direct or I'm sure it depends on the report but generally is it that simple you can say oh it's that thing
1: you know economic systems are really complex dynamic engines right and so everybody wants to tie a why cuz what back this goes back to human nature we all want to rationalize why something did something but sometimes markets act irrational Right. And so they can speculate some reasons and sometimes there's a pretty good indicator, like an inverted yield curve is something you've heard about recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, actually I have. Actually I have. I'm okay. playing a little bit dumb so I can ask dumb questions.
1: Okay. So an inverted yield curve is sometimes can indicate a recession could happen in two years. So that's enough information for journalists to write articles about it. Right. But is it definitively an indicator? Always no.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Uh, determine what your priorities are and be careful. If you're having your lattes in the morning important to you, then you can still have them. Just know they're part of your financial planning.
1: Right. It's just, it's just conscious spending. So make your choices you know, choose what matters to you in life, and that's that's Ramit's thing, right? Yeah. Choose what matters to you in life and focus on those things. And two, we want to debunk, um, you know, for instance, home ownership. Not everyone needs to own a home. It does not always make financial sense. You know. Yeah. And also, if you other financial experts have said if you buy your coffee at Starbucks every day, you're gonna piss away a million dollars. Well, I've run the math on that. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you recommend that people uh, write down everything they spend and keep a spending journal? Or is is, is that, you, you hear that a lot. Having never done it, I'm wondering if it actually works.
1: You know, I think it depends on the individual. I think that that is such a big ask for a lot of people that it actually prevents them from doing the real financial plan- planning. We can do a good overview if you give me a good estimate of how much you spend a month. Right. And then I don't need to know the forensic detail Unless there's something wrong. Okay. Right. So I don't think that you have to do that. Now, if you're in debt majorly and you're completely spending more than you're making, then that would be a good idea. Yeah. But generally, it's, you know, not necessary every time.
0: Should people, and this could be a false dichotomy, should people work on paying off their debt first or invest or both or?
1: These are loaded questions for, so that would that is one is a loaded is, question. Yeah, because that depends on the individual situation. Okay. Right. So, I, I'm not going to give a general answer to that because it depends on what the loan rate is, and it depends on how old they are, and you know goals and yeah all financial the other things goals. You said, right. Yeah. Right.
0: Okay. Like I said, it could have been a false dichotomy. That's. <laughs>
1: They should hire a financial advisor to tell them what's best in their individual
0: situation. <laughs> you looked really angry at that question. Is that one you've gotten a lot, or is that, or that you read in like uh, no, roll your I just, eyes or what?
1: No, I just there's certain financial personalities that love to make these sweeping comments to the mass the masses. Yeah, like do this, but don't do that, and I just don't think that that's financially prudent. Everyone needs it's to more look complicated at complicated that. They need to look at their individual situation.
0: Is there anybody out there like in the in, in that industry who's doing it right or doing it more right? Or is it
1: I mean I think everyone kinda has a a uh, general message, but once again, I don't know what it is about human nature. We we gravitate towards these like sweeping generalizations that we can hold on to, right? Yeah, they're easy. Yeah, yeah. of course. So I mean Dave Ramsey's good at debt reduction. So that's sort of like his thing. Susie right. Orman's also of that vein, but they don't tell you what to do once you actually have money to invest. Gotcha, right?
0: Gotcha. Okay, six. Pay yourself first by automating your savings and investing, putting yourself out there. Is that just as straightforward as it sounds?
1: Hundred um, percent. Set everything up. It, you know, if you have money in your checking account, you're going to spend it, right? So don't even give yourself that option. Like have the money going automatically to your retirement. Automatically to your kids' savings, college. Automatically to your investment accounts.
0: Gotcha. Um, so, how do you stay sane with dealing with this and all the stress that's been going on? I know you talked about you know doing elliptical in the morning and getting you know the blood flowing. And the you had science words behind that, but I don't know where. But it, you know it works. <laughs> Is there anything else? That, what do you else do you do to kind of relax and kind of stay balanced?
1: So, two things. One, I started doing yoga about the time that. The biz- I purchased the business, that's been helpful, but probably the primary thing that has kept me sane the past four and a half years has been my tennis team. So I started playing tennis as kind of a stress reduction outlet after I had my second child. And it's been a really amazing sense of camaraderie to be a part of a team with other badass women. I just really never played team sports as a child. Had no idea what it was like to be part of a team, um, and I, I gotta admit, going out there and hitting things is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's something wonderful about that. Let's be honest. I love after a hard day at work. I love going out there and um, hitting tennis balls or hitting the tennis coach with tennis balls. <laughs>
0: yeah, as the case maybe.
1: But the tennis team, um, which we have named ourselves Bitter and Boozy, is a group of women who are incredibly accomplished in their own right. And they have inspired me to become a better professional, a better person, a better mother, and a better friend.
0: We can't say bitter and boozy without, <laughs> you have to give me the story of the name. That's a great name, by the way.
1: Thanks. So the funny thing is that I've even thought about this. They, they were out celebrating something one night. I was not with them. And a bartender said, you should get this drink. It's got some strong bitters and it's very boozy. And somebody said, oh, bitter and boozy, I'm having that drink. (laughs) So they are like, yeah, that's what we are. We're bitter and we're boozy. But the truth is not a single one of those females has inner bitterness in her. I mean, when you think about that group of women that have, their daily lives are pretty incredible. and no one's bitter everybody's extremely encouraging optimistic and you know how we talked about in the beginning is i think i'd always desperately wanted a group of women is, to hold hands with and walk forward and i've found that in bitter and boozy
0: that's amazing it's uh, my in my own life i've i have several examples of that but i think generally that's uh, that's not the preconceived notion of women's friendships is that been your case is that true or is that <laughs> Is this exceptional because it's exceptional, or is it just something that you're super appreciative of?
1: It's exceptional. I, you know, I experienced mean girls for the first time in second and third grade. So I was the recipient to mean girl behavior. Yeah. So I always wanted a group of girl, and I had girlfriends, right? Sure. But you're right, women are. Some of those preconceived notions are true sometimes that, you know, finding a group of women to hold hands with and move forward and have some great sense of community, it's not as organic as one might think, right? you know, and I don't know, all the, all the millennials on Instagram make it feel like it's real go girl. We're all together, you know, but in reality, it's really difficult to find that community in other groups of women.
0: Yeah. It's very cool. Very cool. You have that. Uh, so, I'm just going to ask some perennial questions that I ask everyone. Uh, okay. Short questions, but your answers do not need to be short. Okay. Uh, is there a bookstore that you love or loved?
1: Yeah, it's called Amazon. I, uh, <laughs> I do a lot of Kindle, I do a lot of reading. So, I, I'm really into the instantaneous download. Are you mainly reading nonfiction or fiction
0: or a little bit of both?
1: I do both. I typically keep a fiction book going and a nonfiction at both times simultaneously. When do you read? I read at night. I do not watch a lot of TV. Okay. And I do a lot of Audible, too. Oh, yeah. I love Audible.
0: You know, I haven't really gotten into that yet. But I have I, read but I need so to.
1: many books on Audible.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, is, do you have a favorite or one of your favorite fiction books? I hate making people pick one because that's kind of hard to do oh, for gosh. a reader.
1: Um, okay. Why don't, is, if you're why recommending
0: don't, a book for me, that it doesn't have to be for me, but one you like and therefore uh, want to share.
1: Now, Michael, I don't think this is going to be for you. I don't know your reading, but I love uh, Rules of Civility by Tolls.
0: Oh, I've never read anything oh, by it's him. Oh, so
1: good. Wanted. And Gentlemen in Moscow.
0: Yeah, I've, that's the one that tempted me.
1: It's yeah. on my list. Okay. You move it off your list and onto your <laughs> Kindle. <laughs> off right. the list. That's great. Um, so, as far as fiction, and I also love that time period. So, I'm very attracted to like 1920s, 30s, and uh, Gentleman in Moscow is before that the time period takes place way before that but um he's a great writer it's just a great book
0: i heard an interview with him and i just made me want to cool i will read that uh let's say there's a fire at your house your family and uh, pets are safe and you can grab three things in this hypothetical if the refrigerator is one you can just tuck it under your arm and go uh what are what are the physical objects that are important to you
1: are we assuming my family's already out
0: yeah family pets you know safe
1: I'm going to say my photographs and my sand collection. I have a sand collection from every beach I've ever been to. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. What's it? Uh, how's it contained?
1: So currently it's in my fire safe lockbox in little tiny Ziploc bags because I have been searching for years for an artist to help me put something together that's not tacky. Right. And I have Google searched that. So if anyone's listening, that's an artist <laughs> that can properly. Help me display my sand collection. Let's talk. Because um, I have sand from places all over the country and all over the world. And I have this vision one day that's going to be in a really cool art installation in my home.
0: That's that it should be. I love this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, like, do you have a favorite sand? And is, or is, it, is it sand intrinsically or is it all just tied to the memory and the experience? Or is it both?
1: No, it's just I love the ocean. So something um, I kind of joke when I grow up, I want to be a mermaid. I feel this is going to sound corny, but I feel closest to God when I'm at the ocean.
0: Oh yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way.
1: And so I have a goal to see the ocean once a quarter. Oh, nice. I don't always hit it, but it's, you got to set goals and put them out there. And so I don't have a favorite sand. I just like the fact that I'm constantly, you know, it's just it's a part of me, and it's a part of the fact that I love to travel, and I love you know to travel to beaches. Pretty girly. (laughs) And so, um, I mean, Greece is kind of a cool one, right? Because that's a pretty far away place from here. Amen. So I love my stand from Greece, but I don't have a favorite, no.
0: Okay, so I don't know, like, if you have, I'm just going to ask the question. So we're in Atlanta, and you can either, you can go to the Gulf or you can go to the Atlantic from here, easily, drive. Uh, Which one do you go to based purely on the beach? Not whatever, like, is actually in your life, factually? The Gulf. Tell me why.
1: And that's the right answer, by the way. <laughs> Have you seen the sand there, Michael? Exactly. <laughs> it's clear, and it's great. And well, I don't know
0: if your time in North Carolina had swayed you in wrong directions. I don't know.
1: Now I do. I love some North Carolina beaches. But you said Georgia, so...
0: Well, oh, yeah. Well, I'm just saying you're leaving from Atlanta, so which right. way are you going? Are you going east or are you going south?
1: Purely beach and not people. I'm going Gulf Coast. Okay. All right. That's cool.
0: Uh. What do you think other people would say your superpower is? And then I'm going to ask you if you're going to agree with them. Would you agree with them?
1: Oh, I know what I would say. Um, I think other people would say, well, my dad always says that I'm good at getting a team around me to do things. So he calls it Team Charlotte. Nice. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I think that my superpower is motivating people to go on a journey with me before they know what the journey is.
0: Oh, that's a that's a great superpower.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What would you say your superpower is?
1: Motivating people to go on a journey with more <laughs> okay. before they know what the journey is.
0: <laughs> I thought it might be something different. All right. No. Uh, do you have a favorite failure?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I did not make the dance line in ninth grade, and that was devastating to me. But you better believe I made that thing in tenth grade. So. Yeah. Okay. The dance team. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It's amazing what little rejection will do sometimes
1: and I had a Spanish teacher told me I wasn't going to be able to speak Spanish so
0: nice uh, do you have a favorite investment now this could be this is your world so this could be financial or it could be just you know course you took that you know or your yoga classes or you know whatever I'm tennis gonna, team dues maybe
1: yeah I'm gonna take that more of the existential not the because favorite investment obviously i I'm not going to give investment advice yeah I think it's meant I okay. mean it more in the existential yeah. way. Okay, so I would say investing in your health and physical activity. So yoga tens, whatever that means, you know, go take up something. So investing in my physical health.
0: Has that what has have you always been I mean it sounds like you've always done physical things or physical fitness has been important to you. Is that true? Yeah. Has, has, I mean, not what as what has what you've, a you've child. done shifted?
1: Oh, yeah, completely. I taught spin for years, and I loved That's that. Right. And then when I got pregnant, my husband said he did not feel comfortable with me getting on a spin bike. And you know what? I have not been in a spin class in like 10 years. So. Right, say,
0: say that again. Not comfortable with you getting on a spin bike? Right,
1: because your heart rate gets up pretty high. I think oh, okay. I think now the research has changed a little bit, but we just decided at the time maybe I should stop spinning.
0: He does cardiology. Is he he does heart doctor stuff. Am I wrong with that? No, he's
1: a rheumatologist.
0: Rheumatologist. Okay. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. That would never mind. All right. Cool. I didn't, hadn't heard that. I get another excuse not to do spin class. <laughs> okay.
1: Like okay. Back it up. <laughs> back it up. No, no, that's totally what you said,
0: Michael. Do not go to spin. No,
1: class. I said if one is pregnant, you should wear a heart rate monitor to check your heart rate. Oh, I,
0: okay. I guess that's that works too. Uh. What recent purchase of $100 or less uh, has positively affected your life? This is a straight theft of a question from someone else.
1: Um, okay, hang on. Cause and it I may
0: ha- not, you know, nothing may occur.
1: No, I had this in my head.
0: I can go to another one while
1: it reappears. Go to another one. Go to
0: another one. Okay, give me, uh, give me your last meal. It doesn't be your last meal, but give me your favorite meal. Give me an appetizer, an entree, a dessert, you know. Or a cocktail or not. Uh, your choice. What do you love?
1: Oh, okay. The
0: special Charlotte meal.
1: It's going to be a Goose Martini with a twist to start. I think the appetizer would be a really good bruschetta. Hmm? The meal would be... It's so hard, right? I don't know. I think it's going to have to be Mexican.
0: Okay. What... What, in particular?
1: I think... What's your go-to Mexican? I mean, who doesn't love Taqueria del Sol, right? <laughs> so probably a combination of some tacos and enchiladas from Taqueria del Sol, and then a perfectly executed tiramisu for d- dessert.
0: Outstanding. I'll join you. Let me know. Okay. Uh, what's your ideal no work Saturday?
1: Um, sleeping... And you l- can throw work in there if you have to. Let's not. I love work, but <laughs> I understand. Um, Some
0: people's eyes cross when I say the no work part. They're like, well, I got to do something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm always thinking about it, but Saturday. Okay. So I sleep late. And by late, I mean like past 7 30. Okay. I've yep. got small people. Yep. Um, we walk to the farmer's market and the Morningside Farmer's Market, close to where I live. So we walk there. We buy, you know, fresh stuff, come home. I go play some tennis with some friends. I go to brunch. And we, if it's summer, because I love summer, so let's assume it's summer. Then I go to the pool with my kids and have maybe a a beverage or two. And then there's people to hang out with. And then we go home or we eat, eat out, not cooking, eat out, (laughs) eat out. Eat out, come home, watch a funny movie, okay, and go to bed early.
0: Give me a couple of funny movies that you like.
1: <laughs> a couple of funny movies. Um, <laughs> I mean, old school is sort of like a classic. Okay. Um, really funny movie, Bad Moms.
0: I never saw that. Is that you, good? Was it good?
1: I mean, I thought it was great. All right, all right. But it's stupid humor, ah, so let's not, can, can you know, that. we're not... Talking like the um, cinematography, you no, know.
0: Yeah, no judgment here. Um, and th- this might be a very long answer, or we may have already covered it. But what's the bad advice that you hear in your industry? Oh
1: gosh, there's so much bad advice that I hear in my industry. Can you elaborate on that? Like to advisors or to to clients, to individuals?
0: I would say like what what people are telling clients. And I think you already covered some of that in the in the media certainly with the, you know, debt or invest, oh. you know, that kind of thing. Like what do you hear? What's the other advice out there you hear that just isn't you would like to eliminate?
1: You know, anything that's extreme. I think what happens is what gets a lot of hit and attention if you, if you look at a spectrum and anything that's not balanced, right? So I think my industry loves to talk about, you know, What's hot, whether that be cryptocurrency or, and I'm not saying that's bad stuff, but in anything in life, if you throw everything into it without balance, you're setting yourself up for, you know, some bumps along the way. Gotcha. Uh,
0: What's your kryptonite?
1: My kryptonite is shiny things and shiny people. All right. Meaning that. you know, if I have some shiny idea or I'm going to run towards that and maybe leave a trail of details behind me or, you know, shiny people. Sometimes I'm attracted to people that are, you know, super fun, but might not be good for me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Understand.
1: <laughs> but I mean, who doesn't like shiny stuff, right? Exactly.
0: Life short and play hard. Yeah. Um, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, thank you for your time. I want to be respectful of it. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention to the audience? Uh,
1: no, thanks. This has been this has been good. This has been fun.
0: Awesome. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com where or you can sign up for the Flock email. A twice a month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right here in.